Good afternoon and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, February the 22nd. And I'm going to try to take it a little easy on some of you out there because yesterday was Fat Tuesday, so you might still be a little bit hungover. Uh, hopefully you are celebrating Ash Wednesday responsibly. If you're not, it's National Margarita Day, so a little bit of hair of the dog will take care of any problems that you might have. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I'm back once again to talk about all things related to enterprise technology, and I'm joined this week by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Max Mortiaro. Max, welcome to the show. Hello. We are very excited to have you here. We've got a lot of great news coming your way. We're going to start off with something that might feel a little old, but yet it's new again. That's because our friends over at Spectrologic have added a new on-premises archive solution for their line of backup products. Now, StoreCycle is the name of this file and object storage solution, and one of the things that it's designed to do is scan uh, cloud storage for older data and move it to either a cloud archive or potentially an on-site backup solution like nearline storage or tape, which is weird because I thought tape was dead. <laughs> really, this is a combination of hardware and software that Spectrologic is pretty much famous for. In fact, when you say the word tape backup, Spectrologic should be the only company that springs to mind because they kind of are the last manufacturer of it at a, at a really large scale. Um, they are doing this because customers are trying to manage the huge amount of data that they have to keep secured and safe in the event of a disaster or, you know, archival purposes, being able to go back and grab it. According to CEO Nathan Thompson, StoreCycle is going to continue to have new features added in the coming months and years to help offer more on-prem archival solutions that kind of align with business interests for people. Max, this is an area that you guys are very well focused in. Are customers really looking to keep their backup data somewhere other than the cloud? Yes, and actually, Tom, uh, I was so excited when I saw these, uh, you know, these uh, story come up because we are working on that. So uh, we are, you know, that uh, I'm doing uh, some work with Gigalum with uh, with Arian, and one of the topics we're covering there with our other friend Enrico is uh, object storage to tape, which used to be before S3 gateways to tape. So. S3 and object storage, I think you, you kind of get the, the story there. Uh, customers, uh, organizations have a lot of data and they've been pushing a lot of their, the data on the cloud because, you know, object storage was kind of the default native location where you want to put there because it's cheap, whatever. The thing is that when you start having petabytes and petabytes of data, well, your bill starts looking like it's not just a, a few uh, couple thousands, but you're getting into hundreds of thousands, it can even be millions. And a lot of the problem you have, the fundamental problem with the data, with this kind of data, which is usually called the data and so on. So if you don't manage it properly, you're going to push a ton of data there, which is redundant, whatever, it's massive, and it's not going to go away. So it will keep growing in the cloud and you do have a problem. So the solution to that, if you look at the media, uh, kind, of the, kind of the pyramid of media types, the cheapest and the broadest capacity media available is tape. And you can have a bunch of tapes, a lot of tapes in your environment. I'm not saying that the tape environment is cheap to design, but it is starting to become the preferred way to store long-term data on premises, very simply because it offers the best dollar per gigabyte, or we could even say dollar per petabyte soon capacity, you know, I mean, a ratio. So that's why we're seeing a comeback of those ancient behemoths, you know, Spectralogic, and uh, quantum and companies of that, of that kind, they all have solutions where, I mean, they already had the tape infrastructure. They had some kind of level of gateways. So you could write as free of an object 
uh, you could present an S3 interface to your applications and know they're including that as well into their kind of lifecycle management uh, program. So you could tier automatically to tape. The data will still be seen as being somewhere, but you wouldn't know as an end user that it is there. Obviously, you may have some latency uh, to, to, to account for, for the time to go get the data, retrieve it, and so on. But in the end, you, you may even be getting a better durability than what you get on, on the cloud. Because you know uh, if you look at Glacier and service of that kind, you don't necessarily get a kind of uh, durability warranty. So yeah, that's uh, to, to, to make it short, I could go on and on and on. That's, that's kind of the, of the deal there. So I've got one story for you. Uh, Avaya, um, you know, they're uh, kind of asking to avoid adding to arrears again, if I say it that way. And uh, Avaya is once again filling for uh, Chapter 11, Bankruptcy Protection. The announcement came as Avaya secured around uh, 780 millions in financing to take the company private, uh, as the pile of debt is expected to shrink to from 3.4 billion to something more manageable. Uh, you know, Avaya is a communications company. Uh, they are focused primarily on unified communication solutions uh, since their previous restructuring. And uh, they saw their assets picked up by a number of networking companies in the industry. Uh, that move means that Avaya will soon be delisted on the stock exchange, which means shareholders are going to take a bath, including major partner Ring Central, uh, which will lose their entire investment uh, but continue the partnership. Tom, are you shocked by this news? Is it wrong to say I'm shocked that I thought Avaya was out of business? Here's the thing. Like we we saw this back in the networking industry several years ago. A lot of the non-communications assets that Avaya had kind of built up their um, you know their networking division. Quite honestly, if you're familiar with um, you know some of the layer two extension stuff, there was Trill versus SPB. Well, SPB was Avaya's solution. And I mean, the Vancouver Winter Olympics was running all over SPB. That was their big story. Um, that's over at um, Extreme now, I think, along with a lot of the people who were working on it, because Avaya needed to get rid of some assets to make some money, and then they needed to refocus their core business. That's what happened before. And here we are again, in spring of 2023, basically saying the same thing again, that Avaya has kind of hit a roadblock. Now you would probably think to yourself, well, shouldn't have Avaya's like unified communications platforms really taken off because of the pandemic? Well, yeah, you'd think that. When's the last time you told somebody you were gonna hop on an Avaya call as opposed to a WebEx or a Zoom or Teams or BlueJeans or Chime or literally every other thing? I think that what happened was is that Avaya got way too focused on continuing to integrate their existing PBX systems. I mean, they even bought Nortel's old Northstar systems and were trying to figure out a way to keep them integrated into modern unified communications. And when you don't have people in offices anymore, you don't have PBXs, people don't have desk phones, people prefer to use other platforms like Zoom and WebEx and Teams. And so the slow eventual slide kind of became more of a steep avalanche, if you will. And and I honestly, there are two people who I feel the worst for in this whole thing. The first, of course, is Ring Central, because Ring Central had made a multi-million dollar investment into this. And what the way that it was re recognized was they had shares of preferred stock. Well, they did. They don't have those anymore. Those basically got wiped out. And it's kind of one of those things where Ring Central's looking at it and going, well, on the one hand, I've got nothing. And on the other hand, I have the potential to make back some of the money that I lost 
So I really only have one choice here. The other thing is anybody who had stock in the company basically doesn't anymore. Um, whenever this whole thing gets sorted out, it's going to get relisted. Uh, I believe the the way the NYSE refers to it is the pink tickets, which is basically try to get rid of the crap as fast as you can because it's less than a dollar a share. I mean, their stock price is literally down 99% from where it was before. That's not going to make money. That's barely going to cover the cost of the transaction fees. I don't know what's going to happen. The fact that this was sold to a private equity firm tells me what I need to know. They're going to try to split up the assets that have some kind of value, and they're going to share. They're going to sell those off to companies who might be willing to pay something for them. Hopefully, the investment firms recoup their investment and then move on to eat other fish in the ocean. But yeah, I think that this is kind of the beginning of the end for what we thought was a company who kind of was already there. So best of luck to the people at Avaya. Uh, these are never fun times, and I know that this has got to be harrowing for folks. But, you know, here's hoping some good will come out of it. All right, Max. Um, if you're a GoDaddy customer, you're probably asking yourself quite a few questions this week because they're facing those hard questions after they revealed that they had some attackers that were in their servers. They've been there for years. GoDaddy found this intrusion back in December after a redirection attack was sending traffic to other websites. And you may think to yourself, oh, well, that's not too bad. Yeah, that means that it was also tied to an attack they found in November of 2021 and March of 2020. So basically, they've traced all of the roots of this for three years. They found that these attackers have been in the system. And in those previous attacks, there were leaked customer passwords, captured email addresses, leaked credentials to SSH boxes, basically as bad as it can get. And now there's a lot of people saying, well, maybe this could explain how the attackers were able to get access to the cPanel installations and basically have control over my entire WordPress installation and a whole bunch of other stuff. GoDaddy, of course, says they're working with investigators to figure out who could be responsible and how much this is going to cost us. Uh, Max, does this really increase the heat on GoDaddy? Well, you know, the, the, the first thing which shocked me is that... Uh you are mentioning GoDaddy at all because I thought that they were gone. It's it's not, it's not a company I have ever any trust in it. I don't know if it's because of their ad campaigns or whatever. It always felt to me like some some kind of, I don't know, thing for mom and pop shops or whatever, you know, things that you would, I mean, my, my feeling, and I'll, I'll get back on track on the, on the story later. My feeling was this is something which totally appeals to non-technical people. You know, that, that has always been my, perception of them. So I never took them for uh, a kind of a professional uh, thing or whatever. And I'm kind of not surprised either somehow. Yeah. But, but again, the, the challenge with those to get, to get back to what happened there, the challenge is that when you have those large environments and you go like that undetected for, for years, it's kind of a catastrophe in the end, right? Because um, I mean, there is nothing you can really do. I mean, the, 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 the how to say that? It looks like the the attackers are so solidly inside your system. By the time you figure it out, that you're better off probably I don't know wiping off everything and restarting from scratch or rebuilding your infrastructure. I don't know. Yeah, but the extent of damage, the extent of uh, whatever uh, those guys may have got into uh, in over this time, it just makes you think. Okay, what what do we do now? I mean, for me, uh, you need to get back uh, on a blank slate, rebuild everything on site. And migrate your users. I think that there was also a mention of a very big 
uh, WordPress hack, which happened not so long ago as well, I think 2021, if I'm not mistaken. So I think the bottom line there is, uh, you know, how do you how do you handle your data? The, 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 the thing is, we're hearing more and more of the services which are being hacked, and you cannot really trust anyone to seriously take care of your data, no matter how good they are, you always need to think about, okay, how am I in control of my keys? Am I in control of my passwords? Uh, is the data encrypted? You know, you cannot just trust anyone at this point in time. Yeah, you know? I mean, it will leak out at one point or another. So uh, really, uh, in terms of if it increases the heat to get back to your question, I think that they must be feeling warm and fuzzy already. Huh? So uh, I don't think that it increases the heat anymore. And we can wish the guys working their uh, best of luck to get out of that. But really, I'm feeling more sorry for the customers uh, in the end. Yeah, and, and with that, we have one last story today. Uh, and it's about Airbus, uh, which is aiming Avidian. Uh, so Airbus is in, uh, reportedly interested into uh, purchasing a 30% stake in Avidian, uh, the half of Atos, which contains uh, their big data and security assets. Atos has stated that they will split the company in half after a failed acquisition in 2022 that led to the CEO resigning. AVDN has seen a lot of interest from investors and partners, but Airbus reportedly wants to solve any lingering data sovereignty issues by purchasing a stake in this company. So Atos isn't quite ready to let Airbus buy the whole thing, um, however, and I think 30% of the um, 30% is the most that they are willing to uh, to let go. So Atos will prefer to offer stock publicly later this year, should plans work out with Airbus and other investors. So Tom, what is Airbus uh, looking to accomplish here? Honestly, I think they're looking to make sure that nothing's going to happen to all of the stuff that they've been using. Um, it's it's interesting because, you know, you people always ask about, you know, what's going to happen if this whole thing falls apart? Like we've talked about it with NVIDIA and ARM. We've talked about it with Microsoft and Activision. We've talked about it with Broadcom and VMware, honestly. But here's an interesting case where Autos tried to buy a company. It fell apart. The board was like, well, it was so bad that we need to split the company in half. And the CEO quit. He's just like, I'm done with this mess. But they, and, and the other thing, too, is typically when you see that, let, let's use HPE as an example. Well, actually, HP. They had HPE, which was all their enterprise stuff. And they had HP Inc., which was all their consumer grade stuff, right? Like printers and, and laptops and stuff. And they kind of did this. And by and large, both companies have been very successful on their own. This is not that. This is like Avidian got all the cool stuff, like digital assets, big data, security, all of the hot stuff. And everything else is getting loaded into another company. So, of course, everybody's going to want to buy a part of Avidian. And that's kind of what Airbus is doing here. And, and note that we're talking about Airbus as a whole because they're not just an airplane manufacturer. They actually have a cyber defense system that's actually really cool. One of our delegates, Jasper Bongertz, used to work there. But more importantly, like, like Airbus is basically saying, we have a huge challenge with data sovereignty and and being that they're you know in a, in the eu specifically i think they're in germany like that's a huge deal like like if you think it's hard to get your data sovereignty issues sorted here in the us go to the eu it is it is insane so they're they're basically buying in a state to say that they have control over how avidian does data sovereignty and i think that ultimately what that's going to lead to is a little bit more of this posturing thing and also harder questions about what's going to happen when a company decides that they're going to split this aspect of themselves off 
or all these other things. It used to be that regulators could kind of step in and go, nah, I don't think this is such a good idea. But we've seen a lot of those kinds of situations crop up where maybe the regulators haven't been as empowered as they should have been. So now companies like, you know, let's just say Airbus or NVIDIA or I don't know, Broadcom, are going to buy a stake in some other company just to make sure that their assets are protected. And, and you know, truth be told, I'm sure that Atos would love to have sold more to Avidian, or more of Avidian to Airbus than they did. But the real secret is that they want to be able to list it on the stock exchange because they want to make their money back. And that's ultimately what's going to happen. Um, I, I, I'm curious to see if this actually goes through. Uh, I, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying maybe this isn't such a good idea. There are even regulators who are starting to step up going, wait a minute, I don't know if we should let you have this or not. So I think it's something we're going to have to continue to follow. But I'm, I'm wondering if this is going to kind of set a precedent. So, you know, we'll, we'll definitely be bringing it to you on the rundown. All right. Um, there's a bigger story that we want to take a little bit of a closer look at because it could have an impact on the way that pretty much the whole Internet works from this point forward. Uh, for those of you who are not in the know, the U.S. Supreme Court took up a case this week that involves some uh, legal issues, specifically this case, which is Gonzalez versus Google, covers whether or not Google is liable for content that was uploaded to YouTube that later led to unfortunate deaths in a terrorist attack. It's pretty heady stuff, but... The case has garnered a significant amount of media interest because it applies to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. You've probably heard about this. It's a rule that says that you're allowed to post a comment on a video or a blog post or a tweet or anything, and that the hosting company is not liable for the content that you have posted. Now, Section 230 has been the target of some very vocal groups across the world that say that internet sites are somehow simultaneously silencing communications, as well as they should be held more liable for the content of the con that, that people are posting on there, which is a really weird Schrodinger's comment situation. Um, Max, you don't live in the U.S., but I think the Section 230 issue applies pretty much across the board, not only because of where a lot of the things are posted um, in the U.S., but also the fact that the majority of social media platforms, whether they're Facebook, Twitter, or anything other than TikTok, would basically kind of be liable if the Section 230 provisions are changed or overturned. Where do you see this having an impact on people? Yeah, it's a, it's a rather broad question to cover, right? So uh, I'd like to maybe uh, look at it from two angles. First of all, uh, the, the first angle is uh, when you think about those big tech giants, Google, Facebook, uh, you know, talking primarily about YouTube and the likes. I mean, they, they, um, they've always been considered as, or at least the way of defense is, we are just a platform and the users are responsible for their content and so on which in a way is a potentially defensible argument. Yeah, but on the, on the other hand, uh, if we focus purely, and we were having a discussion about that before, if you look at YouTube, for example, right? So they're supposedly not able to moderate because there's too much things and they need to hire people and so on. Yet on the other hand, there's a thing which annoys the hell out of me. I mean, it's when you're watching some videos that excellent algorithms when it comes to detecting music, for example, right? So if you put some music somewhere on your, on your video, whatever, then they are very, very good at detecting the audio, 
and demonetizing your video and paying royalties to whoever and so on. And it is detecting music, right? So you'd expect them to be maybe a bit better at basic keyword detection or analyzing some sentences. And maybe we didn't even need to have something like chat GPT to handle that. You know, so uh, it's, it's, I think, uh, a question here, follow the money. It's just that they are too lazy to invest money into that, to do this kind of moderation, because you probably don't need to do this moderation in a manual way, right? If you look at Instagram, for example, during the, the pandemic period, whenever you would be posting something where you had COVID or COVID related, they would automatically apply some tags and some warnings and I don't know what to let you know that there are some rules and you need to follow whatever principles. So the, the argument that they cannot moderate is to me nonsense to say it in a very polite way. And the other aspect is are they platforms or are they publishers? So to me, the, uh, the argument that they are just platforms is kind of no longer relevant because they are effectively used as a means of communication by billions of people, right? So uh, the way they're reporting news, they're helping that, they're in a way contributing, first of all, by the extent of the platform, by the second, because of the algorithms which push things up. And I think that's one of the points in the case is that the algorithm was picking that as something which is interesting, hot news, whatever, regardless of the legality or the messaging of the content. So it was pushing up there. So it was putting it in front. And even if it's algorithm based, it's, it's a kind of, a, to me, it's an editorial decision, right? I own a newspaper. I want to run some stories and I am responsible to say what I want to push. So of course I am not handling a uh, hundred thousand or I don't know how many millions of videos goes out each day, but I make a conscious choice, which is I will push this agenda and I will not push that agenda. So what is different here? I don't see a difference really, right? So if there is content, which is uh, kind of contentious, which is, I don't know, illegal, whatever, you wouldn't want to push that through your algorithm. You may make it available for information purposes or whatever, you know, but you shouldn't be pushing it. So that's my take on it. And I think I've been talking really a lot, so I'd be curious to hear what you think about that. Uh, no, you did a really great job of laying out kind of the challenges. And, and these are the challenges that, quite honestly, um, nine of the oldest people that are still working in the world are are going to be looking at. I, I believe Justice Selena Kagan actually said in arguments uh, yesterday, um, maybe that the nine Supreme Court justices aren't the best arbiters of what's going on in the Internet. Um, which admittedly got a chuckle, but it's funny that you bring up the newspaper uh, uh, argument because this is actually one of the things that was being debated during the Communications Decency Act was this whole idea of publisher versus platform. And a newspaper absolutely is a publisher. So one of the things that I think that kind of leads to that editorial discretion aspect of things is um, space. Like you have a limited amount of space in a newspaper to get things out. Reporters are limited on the number of words that a story can have. Um, comment sections, or as we used to refer to them, the op-ed section. Um, you can only have so many op-eds. I mean, if the, if the New York Times published every opinion piece that they got, their the, the newspaper would be like eight inches thick every day. So they have to have some editorial discretion to be able to say, we want to publish this comment. We don't want to publish that comment. But ultimately, here's the thing. If the New York Times runs a story and it's false, or it is, you know, tainted in some way, they're ultimately responsible for what happens. And they can fire the person who posted it. 
they can take action against them. If I leave a comment on a story in the New York Times, New York Times really, all they can do is ban my account, right? And so the question then comes down to how much involvement should a company have in moderating that? And the funny thing is there's actually a case that's being heard today by the Supreme Court that kind of argues these same things. That's Twitter versus um, Tem Temna, T-A-A-M-N-E-H. I'm sorry if I butchered that. But basically what it's saying is kind of the uh, something very similar of uh, Twitter is accused of taking down um, uh posts, removing posts that kind of insinuate terrorism or terrorist attacks. And so the argument is, is that if Twitter is taking those down, then they have knowledge that their platform is used for that purpose and they should be more aggressive in taking those things down. So on the one hand, you've got people saying that you should automatically remove those things. And on the other hand, saying you should know how to remove these things and know how to get rid of them. So here's the problem for everybody out there who's saying that Section 230 needs to be um, massively rewritten or taken down. You realize that the sword cuts both ways in this case. You cannot simultaneously say that Section 230 should be amended so that platforms have to be more strict in the content that they are allowed to keep up while also simultaneously decrying the fact that your post gets, keeps getting taken down because it is, um, I don't know, inciting insurrection or calling for harm to elected officials or expressing the fact that you believe in a ridiculous conspiracy theory. And yeah, I picked those three examples on purpose because if you look at the number of people who are claiming that Section 230 needs to be removed, one of those or more than one of those three things usually have things in common. And so the problem is when you've created a platform, not a publisher, when I've just said, I'm going to allow this to exist and people can put whatever they want on there with some limitations, those limitations are your only guidelines. And I know that we hate bringing up the fact that the world's largest narcissistic man baby now owns a social media platform that we built our lives on, but even he is learning that you can't be the, um, what is it, the term that he uses, free speech absolutist? Because it turns out that um, as the Supreme Court has even ruled, there are exceptions to the U.S. First Amendment, also known as the you can't shout fire in a crowded movie theater kind of exceptions. You cannot post things that incite insurrection, that call for harm or murder of other people. Like there are limits to what you can do. And Section 230 basically says, if you have a good faith way to take those things out, the rest can kind of do whatever it is you're going to do. Because if you think it's hard to get stuff uploaded to YouTube now, just imagine if this case goes against Google and now every video has to be vetted by a person before it can be uploaded. A lot of you scammers out there are going to lose a lot of money if that happens. And... And, and, I, and I know it all comes down to money, but that's basically what it is, is the reason why these things are kind of open the way that they are is because the amount of money that it would cost to moderate every piece of content that gets posted is impossible. I mean, I'll use myself as an example. I have a blog. I've had a blog for over a decade. I still physically approve every comment that goes on my blog. Some of them I choose not to publish because they are either spam or they're uh, not relevant to the um, uh to the argument or quite honestly, they're personal attacks. And so I choose not to do that. I take responsibility for that. You know, who doesn't take responsibility for that? My hosting provider, WordPress. Could you imagine if I posted a comment 
claiming that somebody else on the internet was an idiot and WordPress got sued for something that I allowed to be published on my blog. Boy, you think the court systems are busy now? Ooh, it's going to get ugly fast. And that's just in the US. And I know that a lot of this is based here in the US, but Facebook, Twitter, all of the platforms that kind of this applies to are based in the US. So that means that the policies are going to have to change. And Lord knows that GDPR kind of knocked them for a loop. This is going to be even worse. And the thing to that as well is that so the article 230 is specifically US related, right? But these platforms are being used across the globe and something that you can say in the US, which is illegal, may be legal somewhere else and vice versa, you know? So there's this aspect as well. There's the aspect of some platform being classified as illegal or not allowed in other major countries. So how do you do that? How do you handle that thing? It's leading to split offs, people using the own platforms. The thing which is interesting, uh, we've been talking several times here about Mastodon as well, for example, right? And there, I mean, they're addressing that with this federation of things. So they're they're federating servers. And when they see a server they don't like because they don't agree, well, they're just cutting off the communication. So in the end, it's leading to islands. Do we care? Do we not care? I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I'm more and more considering social media as uh, nice to have rather at something which has been central over the past 10 years, recently because of all that it implies. But you're right on the point, you know, of uh, and, and jumping somewhere else, the, the, the website thing, right? I do have a website. I'm responsible for moderating it as well. And ultimately, of course, I'm responsible for checking that people are not writing stuff. I mean, you said the, you're at home, you said the rules. So uh, if somebody is, you know, complaining, can you imagine someone complaining because uh, you're blogging about something network related and they're coming up with some conspiracy theories, whatever, and they're uh, suing you because you didn't, let them express their freedom of expression, whatever, but, you know, fine. You can express your idea, but, you know, go express it somewhere else. The thing is, is a website a public form of expression or is it your estate, your property, where you decide what you talk about? So that's also another aspect to look at there. And ultimately, I think that the point you made is, you know, you can say whatever you want, yeah, but you're responsible for what you say and you're responsible as to whether... What you say is what you say is within uh, the uh, um, let's say limits of what is allowed by your legislation, right? I could comment something uh, here in uh, in the Czech Republic where I'm based, and I could be fine because very simply there are laws which say that I am not allowed to talk about that. While in a neighboring country, it would be perfectly fine to talk about that, right? So you need to think about. You can have your opinions. You can have no matter how right or bad they are. But you need to think about what you express, what you write publicly. Would you say that in public in front of people? Yes. Well, fine. If, if, if you are able to do that and you don't feel ashamed, then you should probably write about that online. No, if you're writing stuff which makes no sense and you would never tell to a room or to someone, to a partner, to a friend, well, maybe think twice about whether you're going to post about that. No, there are always ex exceptions to the rule. I mean, if you're an idiot and you're going to say something stupid, regardless of the situation, then of course, well, there is no cure for stupid, you know, so that's it. And, and, and I just wanted to add one last thing because it came across the, the conversation. I was thinking about, you know, social media and are they publishers, are they not publishers? They didn't start as wanting to be publishers. If you think about Facebook, for example, they just wanted to chat with friends and so on. But it has become the kind of a, a, a kind of crowdsourced publishing in the end, right? 
they, the users are creating the content, they're creating the news, and they're just publishing it, and they're reaping the money out of that with ads, with these, with that, and so on. So, I mean, you know, uh, if, if, and that's again a bit of philosophy, if you're working hard to do something and you get money out of it, fine. If you made a great algorithm and you're making millions out of it, fine. If you're making billions and trillions out of people and you are claiming that you have no responsibility, you know, no, uh, just just get the people, get the algorithm, do it, fix it. You know, you cannot just rip off or, or not rip off in the sense of ripping off, but you cannot reap millions, rent billions and pretend that you uh, there you have no solution. That's the bottom line for me. Yeah. And, and this is one of those cases that's going to go on and on and on because the Supreme Court has never been known for expediency. <laughs> so we're going to cover this again uh, later this year. I know we will. And we're going to cover lots more news stories. Um, we do have some cool stuff coming up this week and next week and the week after, as a matter of fact. Uh, this week, we're having Edge Field Day, which should be happening uh, now, actually. If you go over to techfieldday.com, uh, you can check out some of the great presentations from the very first event in the Edge Field Day series. Um, Stephen Foskett and a great group of delegates are going to be streaming live video today and tomorrow. Uh, we also have our next event, Tech Build Day 27, with a special focus on CXL, which will be happening March 8th and 9th, as well as Storage Field Day, uh, which will be March 22nd and 23rd. And with that, we'll uh, wrap this episode of the Gestalt IT Rundown. Remember that we are live every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern Time with your greatest news hits. If you want to follow us, we are at Gestalt IT on Twitter. You can also follow us at uh, our YouTube channel, Gestalt IT Video. You can also subscribe to us as a podcast if you prefer to listen to us when you're out on your walk or your jog or um, road biking or playing lacrosse, whatever it is you do. Um, if you would leave us a review and a rating, we would appreciate that and let people know kind of what we're into and what we like to talk about. And from there on, uh, if you have any stories that you'd like us to cover, please tweet at Gestalt IT, use the hashtag rundown, and we will be more than happy to cover those. But for myself, for Max Mordiaro and our wonderful staff here at Gestalt IT, thank you very much for tuning in. We will see you next week in March for another great episode. Thank <laughs> you.